Hey, I'm Noam Weissman, and you're listening to Unpacking Israeli History, the podcast that takes a deep dive into some of the most intense, historically fascinating, and often misunderstood events and stories linked to Israeli history. This season of Unpacking Israeli History is generously sponsored by Barbara Summer and Alan Fisher and Marcy and Andrew Spitzer. And this episode is generously sponsored by the Jewish Federation of Northeastern New York and the Jewish Federation of Northern New Jersey. Before we start, if you like this podcast, share it with a friend, or two, or ten. Hearing from a loved one is the best way to help new listeners find the show. Okay, ready? Yalla, let's do this. We, the people of Israel, are prepared and anxious to meet the representatives of our neighbors without any preconditions. There are people in Israel and elsewhere say it's impossible to make peace between the Arabs and Israel or the Jewish people. I think they are wrong. So I'm going to be a little controversial today and open this episode with a clip from an unexpected source. ISIS, as in the Islamic State. Listen, I'm not in the habit of quoting terrorist groups, but as random as it sounds, ISIS has some opinions on the topic we're talking about today, the Sykes-Picot Agreement of 1916. And yes, it might be kind of weird to listen to a bunch of sound bites about a crusty old agreement from World War I if you're not quite sure what said agreement is all about, but bear with me, because I promise I'm going to explain. In 2014, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the leader of ISIS, released a propaganda video in which he promised that the Islamic State's expansion will not stop until we hit the last nail in the coffin of Sykes-Picot. Here's one of his spokesmen expanding on that macabre metaphor. As you can see, this is the so-called border of Sykes-Picot. Alhamdulillah, we don't recognize it and we will never recognize it. Inshallah, this is not the first border we will break. Inshallah, we will break all the borders also, but we start with this, Inshallah. Okay, yeah, there are a lot of things that ISIS doesn't like. Like, you know, religious tolerance, women, democracy. But weirdly... They're actually not alone in disliking Sykes-Picot. Turns out, a lot of smart, decent folks also have some things to say about the 1916 agreement that reshaped the modern Middle East. Here's Emily Hawthorne, a Middle East analyst for the geopolitical intelligence agency Stratford. They did not look at the economic viability of the territories. They did not uh, really look at the ethnic and the sectarian realities of the ground that they were that they were really putting a grid on top of. And here's Haider Al-Hui. I think I got that name right. Not the best at pronunciation, but hope that's okay. A visiting fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. A hundred years ago, it was very easy for men in suits in conference halls in the West, meeting in secret, to just draw lines uh, across the sand. But today, it's going to be uh, angry, armed, young men and women on the ground who are going to uh, draw those lines uh, with blood. So, what is Sykes-Picot? Why do so many people from across the political spectrum hate it so much? And why do I, Noam Weissman, think that everyone from ISIS to foreign policy analysts is overrating this just a bit? Yeah, 
I said it. I'm taking the brave stance of saying that ISIS is wrong. Who said I don't take stances on things? But seriously, why am I breaking with the time-honored tradition of dunking on Sykes-Picot? Why do I take the somewhat iconoclastic view that as a historical artifact, the Sykes-Picot Treaty is kinda overrated? Why do I think that the most important moment for the modern Middle East is actually something else altogether? A conference called San Remo that almost no one has heard of. Seriously, have you heard of it? Because I didn't until I was in college. To explain my iconoclastic tendencies, we gotta go back in time. And in what's becoming a theme for this episode, we're gonna open with another terrorist group. This one with a much more foreboding name than the Islamic State. We're gonna talk about the Black Hand. Every disaffected political group needs a grievance, and the Black Hands was this. They really wanted to wrench a greater Slavic state from the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And yes, I promise this is relevant to Israeli history. You know that saying that if you want an omelet, you gotta be okay with breaking a few eggs? Shout out to Benny Morris for coining that helpful idiom. Well, the Black Hand smashed the whole carton, and then some, when they sent 20-year-old assassin Gavrilo Princip to kill Archduke Franz Ferdinand, heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne. I don't think they intended to kick off World War I, upend the world order, and redraw borders across Europe, Asia, and Africa. But you know, that's history for you. Okay, so it's 1916. The Great War, or World War I as it's now known, is raging, and all the key players are duking it out for control of resources, land, and power. The Ottoman Empire, mockingly known as the Sick Man of Europe, is on its deathbed, which means that its territory in the Middle East, which comprised modern-day Turkey, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Iraq, and parts of Saudi Arabia, is up for grabs, and everyone wants a piece of the pie. Here are your major players. Number one, the Ottomans themselves, who have already lost the bulk of their European territory and really want to maintain their control over the Middle East. And just so we're clear, Ottomans are not Arabs. European sources generally refer to them as Turks, which is only kind of true, but that's material for a whole other podcast. Number two, we have the Arabs, represented by Hussein ibn Ali, the Emir of Mecca. The Ottomans have given him control of Mecca, you know, the holiest site in Islam, located in modern-day Saudi Arabia. This was a pretty powerful position, and Hussein kinda let it go to his head. In 1916, he declared himself king of all the Arabs, a title that no one actually recognized, though the Allies did consider him the king of a portion of western Saudi Arabia called the Hejaz. It was on that authority that Hussein opened negotiations with the British High Commissioner of Egypt in 1915, asking that the British set aside some land for an Arab state. In return, Hussein would lead an Arab revolt against the Ottomans. Now, the two men never came to an agreement about specific territory, but Hussein held up his end of the bargain, launching the Arab revolt against the Ottomans in 1916. So the correspondence between the Arabs and the Brits was certainly sufficient to further complicate an already complex situation. Which brings us to player number three, the British. Because when there's territory to be had, you know the British are showing up to the party. They already control Egypt and parts of the Arabian Gulf, and since they're the biggest, strongest empire in the Middle East right now, they're about to get grabby with Ottoman land. Number four, 
To round out our colonial empires, we've got the French. They're allied with the British against the Central Powers, so the two empires are looking out for each other. Which means that they're ready to split Ottoman territory with each other and the rest of their colonial friends, like Russia. Screw everyone else. And finally, we've got the Zionists. You know, the Jewish people seeking national liberation. Not at all as powerful as the empires, not as numerous as the Arabs, but they've got one thing going for them. They're persistent. The Zionist organization is working overtime to guarantee that the most powerful player in the arena, Britain, recognized Jewish statehood in Palestine. And they're about to get their wish. Sort of. So, those are your key players. Now, I remind you that it's 1916. The Ottoman Empire may be the sick man, but it ain't dead yet. So, Britain and France had a lot of chutzpah to do what they did next. They called a secret conference, just the two of them, to determine who gets all the sick man stuff. And by stuff, I mean territory. On the British side was Sir Mark Sykes, whose long career as a diplomat had thus far been disappointing. At the British Embassy in Constantinople, he was basically a glorified intern. Seriously, his role entailed compiling press clippings into an album, but the outbreak of World War I brought along a new post in the British War Office. Sykes spent the first two years of the war kicking around the Middle East on secret recon missions. His boss, Lord Herbert Kitchener, the Secretary of State for War, was so impressed with his work that he sent him off to decide what to do with the remains of the Ottoman Empire. Pretty big upgrade for a guy whose former job consisted of copying and pasting. Sykes' French counterpart was diplomat Francois-Marie-Denis-Joseph-Picot. We're just going to call him Picot. He had served as the French Consul General Beirut for only eight months when World War I broke out. Just enough time to ingratiate himself with Lebanon's Christian community. Of course, he did not consult this community or any local community as he and Sykes redrew the Middle East according to British and French interests only, completely ignoring the wishes of any of the other players above. At the end of the secret conference, they finalized a very creatively named Asia Minor Agreement, or as it's far more commonly known, the Sykes-Picot Agreement, which, as a name, is not any better. So what did Sykes and Picot agree on? Well, it's simple. They sliced up the Middle East and handed out pieces to the major imperial powers. You get some Ottoman territory, and you get some Ottoman territory. For Russia, a part of Turkey. For France, another part of Turkey, southern Lebanon, and most of Syria. And for jolly old England, Iraq, Jordan, the Negev, and the Sinai. And the beautiful contested region of Palestine? Even back then, the Holy Land was a hot topic. So Sykes and Picot compromised. Most of Palestine would be an international zone, under British, French, and Russian protection. Which is a fancy way of saying that Palestine would be under the control of Everyone. Everyone except the people who actually live there. I know I recommend this one a lot, but seriously, listen to our episode on Black Saturday to learn more about what this meant for the Jewish people. That episode is really, really important. Not surprisingly, the British and French governments were smart enough to keep Sykes-Picot a secret. Because, you know, there was a whole lot going on. World War I wasn't over yet. The Ottoman Empire was still technically alive. Arabs and Jews alike were pressing for a state. There was no use ticking off the entire region by publicizing secret agreements 
that demonstrated that Britain and France didn't really care about anyone's nationalist aspirations but their own. As you can probably guess from the fact that I'm telling you about this, the cat made its way out of the bag, screeching and yelling. And the people responsible? Well, that would be the communists. And if you're like, wait, what? When did the communists show up? Well, that would be about now. As if World War I wasn't enough of a dumpster fire, the communists overthrew Tsar Nicholas II in 1917, again reconfiguring the balance of power. And when they found a copy of the Sykes-Picot Agreement in the government archives, they jumped at this exciting chance to sow some chaos. The so-called Agreement of the Colonial Thieves, Lenin's words, not mine, was published in the paper. And the world, well, the world was busy fighting a war. But let's just say that Britain and France were well aware that they had done goofed. Whoops. And to make this story even more stupidly complicated than it already is, the British had also just committed to establishing, and I quote, a national home for the Jewish people in Palestine. That promise was enshrined in the Balfour Declaration, and it was a major win for the Zionists. Although, maybe less of a win for anyone who is trying to keep track of this big geopolitical mess. So let's do a super quick recap. Ready? Number one, it's 1916, World War I is raging. Remember, there is no Jewish state yet, and Palestine at the time was a region, not a state. Number two, the Ottoman Empire is dying. Number three, everyone is excited by this. Colonial powers are hungry to snatch up that resource-rich Ottoman territory. Locals are dreaming of autonomy and self-determination. The Zionist movement is working around the clock to make the Jewish state a reality. Number four, anyone who is anyone is making secret promises and agreements. Number five, the High Commissioner of Egypt writes a series of letters to the Emir of Mecca implying his support for an Arab state, though he's super duper vague about what this entails. Number six, Mark Sykes and Francois-Marie Denise Jojat Picot. And yes, I'm using his full name because it makes me feel fancy, even though I said I would just call him Picot. Get busy carving up Ottoman territory to preserve British and French control of the Middle East. Number seven. In Russia, the communists overthrow the Tsar, kill his whole family, and spill the beans about Britain and France's secret agreement. And number eight. Finally, the British commit to a national home for the Jews in Palestine, while remaining vague on what exactly that means. So... Just a chill, uneventful couple of years. Remember at the start of this episode when I said that dunking on Sykes-Picot is a time-honored tradition? Well, it started way as soon as the thing was published. The region's Jews, for example, were incensed. Historian Danny Gordis writes that for Zionists, quote, Given French antipathy to Zionism, joint French-British control was likely to undermine their aims. Weitzman and other Zionists much preferred the idea of a British protectorate whereas France, they felt, insisted upon making her colonial subjects into French citizens, erasing their national identities. Of course, the British-Jewish relationship cooled quickly. Check out our Chevron episode for more on that. Not to shock you, but secret colonialist wheeling and dealing is not a recipe for pleasing anyone outside of Britain and France, which I get. I'm also generally not in favor of secret deals, colonialism, and totally arbitrary borders. But here's where my iconoclasm comes back. I just don't think it was as big of a deal as these guys claim. Honestly, I think people dunk on Sykes-Picot because, as American historian Sean McMeanan puts it, it's shorthand. These two words are used to sum up the argument that the Middle East is a disaster 
because colonial powers drew arbitrary borders without giving any thought to the folks who already lived there. And that would be a fair argument if that's what actually happened. But it didn't because the Sykes-Picot Agreement was never actually implemented. Remember, Sykes and Picot were relatively minor diplomats, suggesting theoretical borders in the middle of a war. And the reality of the war quickly erased their theories, like Turkey. Sykes and Picot may have carved up the Middle East like a turkey, but they didn't bargain on the creation of an actual independent country called Turkey to mess up their plans. What? I'm a dad. I can make dad jokes. So, Turkish territory? Officially no longer in the cards for our grabby colonial powers. Meanwhile, though the French called dibs on Syria, it was the British who got there first, and Palestine, which was supposed to be an international zone? Well, let's just say that after World War I, everyone in Jerusalem was drinking tea and saying jolly good old chap. But perhaps most importantly, Sykes and Picot didn't include some major players in their post-war calculations, like America the Beautiful, lured out of isolationism and ready to party with the other superpowers, and like the newly formed League of Nations, the precursor to the UN, who actually had the authority and the world's backing to decide what to do with the Middle East. So while the spirit of Sykes-Picot lived on, you know, powerful Western nations redrawing territories at whim, it wasn't them who reconfigured the modern Middle East. Because like I said, Sykes-Picot is overrated. And the real treaty that gave us the Middle East as we know it today, the criminally underrated event that almost no one has heard of, that happened at San Remo. Hey there, taking a small break to tell you about another podcast I love, Israel Story. As we talk about here, Israel is a tough topic to tackle. Some people love it, others, unfortunately, hate it. But Israel Story tells it as it is, beautiful and ugly, ridiculous and heartwarming. Israel Story is a radio show and podcast that brings us nuanced, we love that word, complicated and beautifully crafted stories from a place we all think we know a lot about, but really don't. If you are looking for the best audio storytelling around, not just from the Middle East, but from anywhere, this is the show for you. Hosted by Mishi Harmon and produced in partnership with the Jerusalem Foundation, Israel Story tells extraordinary stories about ordinary people. Tales you won't see or hear anywhere else. According to none other than Ira Glass himself, Israel Story is the This American Life of Israel. It's the most popular Jewish podcast in the world, and it regularly takes listeners from 194 countries on unforgettable, quirky, interesting, and moving journeys throughout the country. Subscribe, listen, and enjoy Israel Story today. Hey, Jewish educators. What are your students doing for Yom HaAtzma'ut? Israel's Independence Day. Our education division, Unpacked for Educators, has the program for you. Join schools from around the world for Israel Pursuit, a massive Israel trivia event. Your students will compete against thousands of other students to see which ones know the most about Israel. Winning students from six regions will continue to a celebrity-studded final game on May 17th. Regional games can be played anytime between April 25th to May 5th. So those of you who already have plans for Yom HaAtzma'ut, 
can participate too. Sign your school up today. Visit unpack.education slash pursuit. San Remo is a tiny city on the Italian Riviera. And yes, it is just as beautiful and romantic as you're imagining. At least according to Google Images. San Remo Tourism Board, call me. Speaking gigs available. I'm there. It was also the location for, yes, I'm saying it, the most important agreement that no one's ever heard of. Without Googling, do you know what the San Remo Conference is? I'm going to bet you don't. And that's okay, because most people don't. Ironically, lots of folks across the political spectrum have some strong opinions on Israel, but I rarely see San Remo come up in any meaningful discourse about the country, even though it's one of the most influential moments of Israeli history. So what is this conference? Well, once World War I ended in 1918, the world had to figure out how to pick up the pieces, how to punish the aggressors, how to reward the victors, and what on earth to do with all the territory that once belonged to empires that no longer existed. So the world's powers convened the Paris Peace Conference in 1919. And over the course of a year, they made some really important decisions. Like, for example, creating the League of Nations. Rearranging the global balance of power took time and effort. So multiple conferences and treaties were called to deal with all the different issues that World War I engendered. Among those issues was the fate of the Middle East. In April of 1920, the prime ministers of Britain, France, and Italy, along with representatives from Japan, Greece, and Belgium, got together on the Italian Riviera to decide what would happen to Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, Transjordan, and of course, the region of Palestine. Also at the conference as observers were a couple of American diplomats and Chaim Weizmann, head of the Zionist organization. It's honestly hilarious to me that it only took a week for these folks to hammer out an agreement. I mean, Israel's been trying to get a peace deal with the Palestinians for decades, but the conference attendees had a pretty simple solution to the problem of the Middle East. And it was, drumroll please, mandates. Nerd corner alert. Let's take a moment to actually define the term mandate because it comes up a lot in Israeli history. And if you're anything like me, you always heard the term mandate, nodded like you understood what it was, but you actually totally had like no idea what it meant. A mandate, also called a mandatory, refers to those territories that used to belong to the Ottomans or the Germans before World War I, like, you know, Palestine or Iraq. But when Germany and the Ottomans lost the war, Allied powers took over those areas. I want to stress, though these mandates were not colonies. Well, they weren't supposed to be. See, the League of Nations technically believed that self-determination was important and that people should be able to govern themselves. Or in their very wordy words, there should be applied the principle that the well-being and development of such peoples from a sacred trust of civilization and that securities for the performance of this trust should be embodied in this covenant. The thing was, they also believed that these former Ottoman and German territories weren't yet able to govern themselves. So again, in their terms, the best method of giving practical effect to this principle is that the tutelage of such peoples should be entrusted to advanced nations who by reason of their resources, their experience, or their geographical position can best undertake this responsibility. In short, the Allies' presence had an expiration date. Once the folks in these territories proved they were able to self-govern, the allies were out of there. 
So if you're cynically thinking, I don't know, Noam, this plan sounds both condescending and kind of open to abuse, well, you're right. Particularly in those mandates that the League of Nations considered, uh, unable to govern themselves adequately. But that didn't apply to the mandates of the Middle East. And it's worth noting that every single one of the Middle East mandates gained its independence by 1949. Okay, so San Remo codified the idea of mandates. Iraq and Palestine, including modern-day Jordan, went to Britain, while Syria and Lebanon went to France. Sounds suspiciously like Sykes-Picot. No? Well, yes and no. Because San Remo established two very important things, and pay attention here. Number one, as we mentioned above, British and French control officially had an expiration date, where Sykes-Picot basically envisioned the Middle East as one big colony with zones of direct control and zones of indirect influence, whatever that means, San Remo explicitly intended for all its mandates to gain independence. And number two, the future Jewish state, eventually to be called Israel, was officially a go. In the words of the resolution itself, the mandatory will be responsible for putting into effect the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people. In the words of Chaim Weizmann, president of the Zionist organization and the first president of the state of Israel, this is the most momentous political event in the history of our movement and in the history of our people since our exile from our homeland. Pause and let that sink in. Two years later, on July 24th, 1922, the League of Nations doubled down with every single one of the 51 member countries declaring recognition has been given to the historical connection of the Jewish people with Palestine and to the grounds for reconstituting the national home in that country. Hell yeah. Like Sykes-Picot, the San Remo Conference gives people, well, the people have heard of it anyway, lots of feelings. And those feelings really depend on where you land on the political spectrum. Take Palestinian-American journalist Ramzi Baroud, who sees San Remo as a tragedy in which Arab-Palestinians, quote, historic homeland was being confiscated and handed over to colonial settlers. I'm not super clear how an indigenous people can be considered colonial settlers, but that's a different conversation and really Chaval, too bad he sees the Jews as colonial settlers. Having said that, we can hear how devastating it was to have land confiscated from his perspective. On the other hand, you've got the folks who are generally pretty pleased with the fact that Israel exists. Not to shock you, but I'm a proud member of that camp. And for us, San Remo was legit because it enshrined into law both the creation of a Jewish homeland in Palestine and the birth of several modern Arab states like Iraq, Lebanon, Syria. Their process of statehood is no different than that of Israel. But San Remo's resonance goes beyond Zionist versus anti-Zionist. It's got implications for both the Israeli right and the Israeli left. The Israeli right, for example, generally supports the expansion of Jewish communities in Judea and Samaria, aka the West Bank. Remember, San Remo codified, and I quote, the historical connection of the Jewish people with Palestine and the grounds for reconstituting their national home in that country. Using the historic definition of national home, i.e. the Iron Age Israelite kingdoms of Samaria to the north and Judea to the south, San Remo justifies the expansion of Jewish communities in the West Bank. Here is Professor Eugene Kantorovich explaining that San Remo actually encourages settlement. 
the bottom line is that the recognition of the legality of these uh, communities is the first step towards restoring the promise of San Remo that Jews have a full right to settle throughout the territory of mandatory Palestine. But if you're on the opposite side of the argument and think that Judea and Samaria should be part of an eventual Palestinian state, you could easily argue that San Remo left things pretty vague. The Israel Policy Forum, for example, points out, and I quote, the legal instrument that established the British mandate after San Remo refers only to a national home and makes no mention of independence nor of a state. The critical omission here is no accident. It is not as if the Allies were unfamiliar with the concept of national independence or states. They also add, the British government ultimately conditioned the Palestine mandate on the London-based Zionist leadership's acceptance of the 1922 White Paper. In the White Paper, Winston Churchill clarifies that the terms of the Balfour Declaration, itself the basis for the mandate issued at San Remo, do not contemplate that Palestine as a whole should be converted into a Jewish national home. In other words, in the view of the government that crafted the mandate in Palestine, never meant in all of Palestine. So, no matter how you slice it, San Remo left a lot up to interpretation. But it's also inarguably among the most important moments of Israeli history, even though it happened 28 years before Israel's official birth as a modern state. So, that's the story of Sykes-Picot and San Remo, and here are your five fast facts. Number one, though the Ottoman Empire had been crumbling for decades, World War I was the final nail in its coffin, leaving its territory wide open. Number two, a lot of folks wanted a piece of the former empire, but ignoring everyone else and their interests, English diplomat Mark Sykes and French diplomat Francois-Marie-Denis Georges Picot, whew, that's a mouthful, drew up a secret agreement that divided the Middle East according to their own interests. Number three, this secret agreement wasn't secret for long. The newly instated communist government publicized it to the world, and no one was a fan. Jews and Arabs in Palestine were equally cheesed off, and modern-day players from ISIS to respected analysts to YouTube commenters all really hate Sykes-Picot. Number four, but this mid-war agreement never actually came to pass. It was essentially replaced by the San Remo Conference of April 1920, in which the world's powers figured out what the Middle East should look like, for real this time. And number five, at San Remo, the League of Nations committed to the establishment of a Jewish national home in Palestine. In short, San Remo made the Balfour Declaration legally binding, paving the way for the establishment of the independent state of Israel in just a few short years. So those are the facts, but here's one enduring lesson as I see it. It's not a secret that people extrapolate different conclusions from the same set of facts. Just look at how different folks from Ramzi Baroud to Eugene Kantorovich to the Israel Policy Forum engage with the history of San Remo. Or to put it another way, we each take a different story from the same set of facts. One we clutch for comfort and consult for proof that what we believe is right. That's the power of story. In the words of British scholar Barbara Hardy, we dream a narrative, daydream a narrative, remember, anticipate, hope, despair, believe, doubt, plan, revise, criticize, construct, gossip, learn, hate, and love by narrative. So why has San Remo largely been left out of the narrative? Why has Sykes-Picot dominated instead? Well, 
The cynical part of me believes that Sykes-Picot is a really convenient punching bag for people who don't like the way the Middle East looks right now. It's a simple story you can tell yourself to explain why there's a war in Syria, or violence in Iraq, or instability in Lebanon, or a seemingly intractable conflict between Israelis and Palestinians. Viewed through that lens, it doesn't really matter if Sykes-Picot is actually to blame for the tire fire that is the Middle East. Because it's easy, a pat ideology that helps us to make sense of why things are the way they are. Could you use San Remo to make the same case? Maybe. But if you have an agenda, like, say, believing that Israel shouldn't exist, you have a much harder time using San Remo as your evidence. After all, if the agreements of San Remo aren't valid, then neither is, say, the existence of Lebanon, or Syria, or Iraq. And while those places are messy, very few people are questioning their right to exist. But I'm not telling you about San Remo today because I want you to go out and fight with an internet troll. If you want to, have fun wasting your time doing that. That's a surefire way to mess with your mental health. If someone doesn't believe Israel has a right to exist, citing San Remo isn't going to sway them. Because as Brett Stevens put it in a 2022 Sapir Journal article, the battle for Israel's good name isn't being duked out between scrupulous pedants. No, I'm telling you about San Remo because it's an integral part of the story of Israel. The rich, complicated, messy, multifaceted narrative we tell and retell ourselves to try and make sense of why the world looks the way it does. And for too long, it has been left out of that narrative. So I want to bring it back to our story, another layer in the narrative we tell ourselves to make sense of why we're here, a legacy we must excavate to truly understand the story of our nation. Thank you all for listening. One last reminder, if you haven't yet, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And help us grow this podcast community by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Now it's time for our favorite segment, Israel Nerd Talk, where we highlight one of you, our amazing listeners. We get the best emails from you, and we want to share them with the world. This week, meet Stephen. Stephen wrote, Hi guys. Hey Stephen. I have just discovered your podcast and find myself binging my way through the episodes. I'm not Jewish, so I find them all very instructive coming as I do from a generation that knows little of Israeli history aside from what we read in the fiction of Leon Uris and what we have absorbed over the years from the mainstream media. Thank you, especially to Noam, for your personal reflections. And more generally, thank you to the team responsible for making this series of podcasts available. They have dramatically expanded my understanding of Israel's extraordinary history. They are truly gems. Stephen, you're a gem. First of all, I feel like we can just begin with bonding over Leon Uris. What a boss bringing proud Zionist literature to the world. But also, I want to say thank you for engaging. Really thinking about Zionism beyond the boilerplate left-right binary is freaking hard, no matter your background or where you came from. So I'm glad you're part of our Unpacking Israeli History community. Thank you, Stephen. And if you listening also have thoughts, comments, suggestions, ruminations, whatever to share, don't hesitate. Be like Stephen. Send me a message at noam at jewishunpacked.com. Your email might even get on the show. Unpacking Israeli History is a production of Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. Check out jewishunpacked.com for everything Unpacked related and subscribe to our other podcasts. Follow Unpacked at all the social media places like TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Just look for at Jewish Unpacked. And again, write to us at noam at jewishunpacked.com. 
I'm going to close this episode with a song called A Tribe of Brothers and Sisters. In Hebrew, Shevet Achim Ba'achayot. It too tells the story of our nation. Written in honor of Israel's 70th birthday, it brings together some of Israel's best-known singers to describe what Israel means to them. They don't mention San Remo, but it's unlikely that this song or this example of Jewish unity would exist without that fateful conference of April 1920. <laughs> This episode was produced by Rifki Stern. Our team for this episode includes Adi Elbaz and Rob Perra. I'm your host, Noam Weissman. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Thank <laughs> you.